0: Let us pray. Gracious Father, we are grateful to come this morning to give you our worship. We bring ourselves to this and ask that you would come and meet us right where we are this morning. You know the things that weigh us down. You know the things that bring us joy. You know what's before us in the days ahead. And so I pray, come Holy Spirit, come move mightily in our midst today. For we cannot understand the riches of your word unless you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive. And so come, Holy Spirit, do what you long to do, and may we receive by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, One of the things that I hope you're beginning to see as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews is a God who loves you beyond all limits. It's a challenging book that, that frankly, there are not a lot of people preaching on these days, but what we see in this book is a God who goes beyond all limits, no boundaries, to show us how magnificent and tremendous His love is for us, and in all of that, to bring us into a relationship with Him. It's a piece of what we're going to look at in the passage before us this morning. and I've just got two points that we're going to unpack through uh, what what was read a moment ago in um, Hebrews chapter 7. The two points are this. They're very simple. Our need and God's remedy. I think you can get that. Our need and God's remedy. And so we're going to dive right in this morning and look at this. We first see our need. One of the things when we come to a passage like this one in Scripture is there there are certain passages like this that it's easy to miss the deeper meaning now, it's easy to miss a deeper meaning if we're not really sure of the context that it's written in and also how the original audience would have received these words. So we're going to look at that in just a moment. You see, this passage in Hebrews that was just read a moment ago for the original audience would have been shocking. I would say it'd probably been jarring when they read these words or heard these words preached because these were first century Jewish Christians in Rome. And and what's being talked about here is the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. And those two, I would say, were, were, were the backbone of the Jewish life. It was the backbone of their Jewish life. And all of a sudden, they're hearing this, that Jesus has come to do away with that, that that was actually a shadow of something far greater to come. You see, that's what we begin to see in this this morning and what we find first off is as we think about the Jewish sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood that automatically shows us our need. And here's what it is. One thing that we all have in common, everyone in this room, and I would say all humanity shares in common, is this. We all know what it's like to experience guilt. We all know what it's like to experience guilt. Whether you would say you are a religious person or not, we have all experienced guilt and its ramifications. We know what it feels like. We know this, whether you, you call something sin or not, we know when we do something wrong, we feel not just guilty, but we feel often condemned. That's the need, that's the reality. And so what we see here is this. With the ritualistic practices of, this, of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, that was very attractive to these to these first century Jewish Christians and to Jews as well. It was very attractive because it dealt in many ways with one's guilt. You see, once a year the Jews would come to the temple and they would come and the priests would go into the temple making an atonement, an offering, a sacrifice for the sins of the people. That in that moment it was like their their guilt was kind of taken away. So it seemed to them... And what the priest would do is he would kill an animal and, 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 and offer the blood, sprinkle the blood on the altar, symbolizing the atonement has been made for the sins of the people. This is the way they dealt with their guilt. And so for the writer of Hebrews to say that this was no longer going to be in effect, that would have shocked them, I'm sure, thinking, then what do we do with our guilt? How is our guilt now going to be dealt with? One of the things we see, we have to understand this, is that the Jewish sacrificial system could never do what the people needed it to do. It could never fully forgive their sins. It could never fully take away the condemnation. They could never fully wipe away their guilt because they had to offer it over and over and over, year after year after year. The atonement had to be made for the sins of the people. So it wasn't complete. There was something lacking, if you will. And so for sins to be dealt with once and for all, for for guilt to be removed, something else had to come in place. And and that's what we find here. But what we also have to see that the writer is naming here as well, not only is that system a a foreshadowing of something greater, because it could never give the people what they needed, We also see in this passage that the law, God's law, could never fully um, make the the people perfect. Look at verses uh, 18 and 19. Here's what we read. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. You see, right there, he's not saying that the law totally is useless, but it's useless in that it does not make us perfect. You see that? We cannot perfectly follow the law in order to be seen as righteous before God. And so what they're faced with was the sacrificial system couldn't really do it. And following the law, that wouldn't make us perfect before God. So what are we left with then, right? What are we left then with With knowing that we are sinful and there is guilt in our lives? We'll read on in verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, we see our need, guilt and shame, condemnation. The law, the, the, the Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system could not deal with it. But here we see there's something better introduced. As he calls it, a better hope is introduced that actually allows us to draw near to God where all of our guilt, all of the condemnation, all of our sins are wiped out clean. That's what they're being confronted with, and that's what you and I are being confronted with today as well. So we got to start with our need and be real with it and name it, and then we begin to see God's remedy. And here's what we find in verse uh, 22 of chapter 7, that Jesus comes as our high priest. He comes as a greater high priest than those that they had in the Old Testament. Hebrews 7.22, we read this, this makes Jesus the, guarant- the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, I want to talk for a second about what a covenant is. What does, this, what does this mean, that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant? A covenant is a contract between God and man. As some have defined it, it's a, it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And so here's what, what, what this looks like, this, this idea of a covenant. Covenants were sealed in blood, and when this covenant was made, you would take, or when covenants were made back then, you would take an animal, cut it in two, sounds pretty gruesome, but you would cut it in two, separate the parts, and both parties who are making an agreement with one another would walk through, okay, would cross through. And what that signified is this, it's saying this, may I be cut in two and killed like that animal if I'm unfaithful to the covenant, if I am unfaithful to the promise that I made. Do you see that? And that's the covenant that God made with his people. God being faithful, and we are called to be faithful as well. Well, what did the Israelites do in the Old Testament? They said, we will be faithful, right? We'll be fa- we will follow you. But then you know the story. Many of you do. What would they do? They would turn right around and do the exact opposite, you see, they weren't covenant keepers. They were covenant breakers. They couldn't keep the covenant. And so what was the, what was the response? What was, what was the consequence? That they deserved death, right? Because they didn't keep the covenant, but God did. So here's the point I want us to see for a moment. You and I are no different than them. We are covenant breakers. We're not covenant keepers. Think about it this way. How many times have you said to God, I'm gonna follow you and I'm gonna obey you. I'm not gonna do that again, right? And then what do you do? You might walk a day or two, but all of a sudden we're, we go right and do that again, right? How many times have you said, I'm never gonna do that again? But yet, we're not covenant keepers, we're covenant breakers. And what we find in this is that you and I, like the Israelites, are liable as well. Because we broke the covenant, Guess what we're due? We are the ones who are to then be cut in half and killed, right? God's faithful. We have not been faithful. But friends, that's not the end of the story, and praise God for that. Look again at verse 22. We read this, this this great sentence. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What does a guarantor do? Think about someone guaranteeing a loan. Many of you have had loans before. If you default on the loan who pays for it? The guarantor, right? When I moved Alexander, our son, to Boulder, Colorado this summer, I had to co-sign on his lease for his apartment because he hadn't really worked and and had income long enough. And so what I did, signing that, saying if he doesn't pay his rent, I'm going to pay his rent, right? That's what a guarantor does. Friends, here is where we see, and I want you to see this, God's incredible love that he goes beyond all boundaries for you and me to bring us into relationship with him. You see, because we could not hold our end up of the bargain up, God held his, but you know what he did? He held up ours as well. I want you to think about that for a minute. God not only held his up, he was faithful to that, We were unfaithful, but God comes and says, you know what, I am going to hold yours up as well. And that's why Jesus came into this world. Jesus came, friends, to be torn in two, to be killed for you and me, so that we could be reconciled and have a relationship with God. See, here's where we see God's remedy, and I love this. God brought his son not only to be the great high priest, but he also became the offering. He gave his life. The high priest in the Old Testament would take an animal and kill it and and, and sprinkle the blood on the altar. But Jesus came as the one who would go into the temple, offer the sacrifice by giving up his life, by shedding his blood on the cross. That's what we see here in verses 26 and 27. Here's what we read. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He had to be holy and pure to be a perfect sacrifice. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Who would do such a thing? Think about that. He became the priest and the sacrifice for you and for me. Friends, do you know that? Do you know that reality in your life? Has that become real where where you recognize you did this for me? When I was putting this together last week, the the song that that Stuart Townsend wrote came into my mind, the wonderful hymn. Here's how it goes. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read some of it. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen ones bring many sons to glory. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. Life, I know that it is finished. Friends, those are the best words in the world. When Jesus said on the cross, when he went for you, do you know that? Do you know how high and wide and deep the Father's love is for you? That he sent his son to be the sacrifice so that you didn't have to, I didn't have to. And he said, it is finished. Some of the most glorious words we could ever hear Jesus say from the cross. Friends, this is a reality that we need to come back to every single day. Because if we don't, we're going to forget. But how could we forget such an incredible love as this? And it gets even better as as he describes what's happening here, this, this greater sacrificial system of Jesus offering his life. Look at verse 25. We read, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What I want to stop for a moment and look at is that phrase, he is able to save to the uttermost. want you think about that. That is one word in the Greek, to the uttermost, and here's what it means. It means comprehensiveness, completeness, exhaustive wholeness, done fully. You see, Jesus doesn't just save us for the most part, and then we have to do our part, <laughs> He saves us completely. Now, let me say this. I think many of us in this room theologically know that is true, that Jesus saves us completely, and I don't have to do anything to earn it. But boy, I tell you, you step back and you see how we really live, (laughs) and we don't live out of that right theology, do we? We live as if Jesus did his part, and I've got to now do my part to be clean and whole before God, right? It's like my friend Carter, we, we talk every Sunday morning at like 5.30, he's a pastor in Nashville, and, and, and this morning he said, I said, where are you? And he goes, well, I'm in, pulling into the gas station to get, a, to get a Mountain Dew. He goes, I need a Mountain Dew before I preach today. He goes, the Holy Spirit's going to do his work and the Mountain Dew will help me with mine. And we just laughed, and I said, Carter, that's what I'm preaching about this morning. And he goes, I know it's the Holy Spirit doing it all, but friends, isn't that how we so often live? Holy Spirit, do your part, Jesus do your part, but I need my mountain dew, and I'm going to do my part. That is not the gospel. Jesus did it, all, oh, friends. That phrase, to the uttermost, completely, you and I, by His grace, are completely set free. So I want to ask you this this morning, a few questions to think about. Can you think of places in your life right now where you're trying to earn favor with God? Can you name them? There are places where you're trying to earn favor with God. It's very subtle. We cover it well, but we all do it. Another question: Is there a place in your life where you're having a hard time believing that you're truly forgiven? You're believing you don't really believe you're fully forgiven. Is there a dark place in your life where you are so ashamed that you don't believe that Jesus' forgiveness reaches there? Some of you all this morning. Friends, Jesus came to save to the uttermost. All of it. He came to forgive to the uttermost, and the uttermost are those dark places in our lives that we really didn't believe He could reach. But He can, and He does, and He did. Do you see that? That's why this sacrifice is so much greater than anything we read in the Old Testament sacrificial system. What we find here is Jesus' work on the cross is finished. Once and for all, done completely. We had nothing to it. That's the incredible news. But I want to say this before we end, and there's, there's another part that I want, to, I want to talk about just for a few moments, and we're going to look at the last part of verse 25. We often think, don't we, that Jesus did his part on the cross. It's done. Now he's just in heaven waiting to come back here and then bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. And maybe we can wonder sometimes, Jesus, what are you doing now? And I think a lot of us tend to live our lives with Jesus up there, out of, out of sight, out of mind, and we just try to get through this life here, right? That's not the biblical picture. That's not what's being painted here. I'm going to read 25 again. But he holds his priesthood permanently, okay, which means he's doing something now because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, who through him, since he always lives, to make intercession For them. Now, this is crucial, friends, for us to grasp. One of the the works, duties of the priest in the Old Testament was not to just bring the sacrifice into the temple, but they would also offer up prayers to God for the people. They would intercede for the people, okay? So, with Jesus being our great high priest, we see that he too is interceding for us. And what I want you to see here, he is interceding for us moment by moment, every second. Of the day. I want you to think how vast God is. I mean, He knows every single person in this room and He's interceding for you every single moment. Let me ask you this What difference would it make in your life if you knew that Jesus was in heaven in the presence of God the Father interceding on your behalf? What difference would that make? I'll tell you, it's made all the difference for me this past week. It was one of those hellacious weeks. (laughs) I'm sure you've had them too. (laughs) But I kept going back to the reality, Jesus intercedes for me right now in this very moment. In those times when I couldn't even sleep, I had to go back and go, Jesus, you were interceding for me. I can let it go. And I can trust that you're going to do far greater what's going on in the midst right now. Friends, here's the invitation for you and me. When you are hit with that thing that's overwhelming that you don't know what to do with, turn your eyes to Jesus who is interceding for you in that very moment. He feels your pain. He knows your suffering. He prays for your protection. He prays for you words that you don't even know how to pray yourself. He is praying those things for you. I want you to know he sees, he hears, and he acts, okay? He is interceding for you on your behalf. And those things that we don't even know to to pray for, he is praying for us. I read this this week. Robert Murray McShane had this great statement that he said once. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. If you were in here and Jesus and the Father were in the prayer room right next door and you could hear him praying for you, Friend, let me tell you, you will stand up tall and you will walk through whatever is before you with humble boldness because you know that your Savior is pleading before the Father on your behalf. The enemy can't touch that. Amen? I love how Paul picks this up, and we're going to end with this. In Romans 8 and 34, Paul wrote, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. I love that statement because Paul gets the reality that there is a very real enemy who is, who is going, saying words in our ears that are lies. He's saying words that are to condemn us because he wants us to think that we are condemned. How often do you, don't raise your hand, but how often do you feel condemned? <laughs> How often does shame and guilt hold you captive and bound? Friends, Satan is the accuser and he is the father of lies. Now I want you to think about going into a heavenly courtroom. God the Father is in the seat as the judge and Jesus is before him pleading your case, pleading mine with words that are true, saying there's now no condemnation for they are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's the beauty of having one intercede for us. There's no condemnation. The enemy says condemned, but Jesus says forgiven. You need to hear that this morning. The enemy says condemned, but Jesus in all truth says forgiven. I don't know, this is probably the third time I said I'm ending. I'm going to end with this quote for true. Dane Ortland wrote a tremendous book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. If you're in a place of of suffering and and just needing encouragement, it is a fantastic book. Dane Ortlund, Gentle and Lowly. Here's what he wrote. Our sinning goes on to the uttermost, but his saving grace goes to the uttermost. And his saving grace always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he always lives to intercede for us. His grace outruns our sinning. Grace abounds. Amen. So, friends, remember your need, and remember Jesus alone is the remedy, and let God do this great work of renewal and restoration in you. Father, we submit this to you. I thank you for this word, challenging yet freeing. Come, Holy Spirit, come do this work that you continue to want to do in us this day and in the days ahead. We thank you for this truth, Jesus. Thank you that you have come to save to the uttermost. Oh, may that set us free today. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.